Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. And we're trying to give people the digital experiences that they're used to in all other facets of their life, but that seem to be sorely missing when it comes to energy. And so what that means is that our customer app, for instance, is very focused on not just providing a bunch of power flow graphs to people and talking to them about kilowatts and kilowatt hours and all these sorts of things, but more about just talking to them on their terms and making, you know, we talked about that concept of the ebb and flow of the night and day, this idea of being able to see how your home sort of ebbs and flows over time and understanding how today feels a little bit different than yesterday and being able to see that, oh, the weather's a bit different or Timmy had a, a party or whatever, and we used way more power at three in the afternoon than we did because we had a party on, on Sunday afternoon. You know, seeing how your the world around you affects your energy consumption and or production is one way that we think is really important to make this feel like a human concept that people can engage in, that they can tell their friends about, and that they want to buy. All right, Sam, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Nick. So to dive right into the deep end, for folks listening in who are not familiar with lunar energy, how would you describe in 60 or 90 seconds what you all are up to? Yeah, so lunar energy is on a mission to power homes around the world with endless clean energy. And there are really two key pillars to this. First is that we're building a best-in-class home electrification hardware system called the Lunar System, which Mm. is an integrated solar and home battery. And alongside this, we've got an app for installers and one for end users, and we can chat about that a bit more later. And we're launching the system in in the US later on this year. And then the second pillar that we've got is our grid share platform. So that connects to and controls third-party DER around the world Mm. to deliver granular behind-the-meter optimization as well as VPP services. So we do machine learning predictions of every home's generation and consumption patterns. And then for each of those homes, we will create bespoke daily plans to deliver the optimal control required. And uh, the name Lunar Energy, is there a a conceit there that you could use the hardware on the moon to be a self-sustaining operation, or is there a different story behind it? To be clear, we don't have any ambition to be on the moon (laughs) anytime soon. Sure. But I think yesterday was the anniversary of the moon landing, potentially, or or a particular anniversary. Um, Mm. And we posted about it on our Lunar social media page, and they had Buzz Aldrin putting solar panels up. Nice. And our quip was, you know, if we can have endless clean energy on the moon why can't we have it on earth no the story behind the name is fundamentally the idea that with a home battery system you're taking the sun and you're using it to power the night really Uh, so that's where luna comes from got it and that idea of the sort of circadian rhythm of a home that's got solar and battery is something that we're really focusing on and is you know we think a really sort of engaging way to talk to real people about what on earth is solar and battery it's you know the sun comes up, the battery fills up, mm. and then the mood comes out and the battery empties. There's sort of an ebb and flow to it. So yeah, that's where the name comes from. I'm curious to ask here at the top, an interesting question that came up for me when I was preparing for this conversation a little bit is sort of, it's easy to appreciate and get excited about how much has improved in terms of battery technology over the past, say, decade or two. That's really made it more possible and more attractive for folks to think about putting a battery in their home. But I'm also curious what other technologies have improved considerably over the past decade or two that have really unlocked the opportunity for you all to go out and build the business that you all are building. Obviously, the fact that the cost of a battery pack has come down something like you know, 
odd percent in the past 12 years is mm. is critical. But when you think about what the value of a battery is to a home or to the power system, you need to think about what, what's changed in all those other nodes of the power system as well, right? So it's not just right. that batteries have become cheaper. It's that solar and wind have got cheaper over the past 10 years, you know, huge 80, 85% sort of cost reductions over a 10-year period. What does that mean? There's lots more wind and solar on the grid. What does that mean? It means that you've got more intermittent generation on the grid. You've got more volatile sort of wholesale prices. It means that, you know, devices being connected down in the distribution network are, not, are all of a sudden maybe having impacts on the grid that weren't foreseen when the grid was built, you know, reverse flows and all these sorts of things. And so those other trends in and of themselves then lead to batteries being a really useful tool, both for a home where, say, we think about trends in, in utility prices and we're operating in multiple different markets, Japan, the US, various countries in Europe, and obviously each market is its own thing. But, right. you know, the cost of electricity we've all seen has gone through the roof recently with natural gas prices and it's natural gas is sort of getting back to maybe normal levels. But still, I think in California, the capex that's required from the IOUs to upgrade the networks over the next right. five to 10 years means that there is just are going to be a secular increase in the cost of utility like grid power. Yeah. So even as natural gas prices have come down, the electricity prices, especially somewhere like California, have been a bit perniciously, stickily high. When we think about it's cheaper to put solar panels on your roof or the solar panels are cheaper, mm. there's more wind and solar at the utility level, at sort of the commercial industrial level. The batteries are cheaper. You then add into that the fact that cloud computing has transform the way that we think about the digital economy over the past 10 years. So we can handle this huge amount of data using cloud services that 10, 15 years ago would have been, you'd have had to set up your own server and you'd have to manage that and all that kind of stuff. Now you can just yeah. spin up the architecture that you need and pay for what you use on a millisecond by millisecond basis. And you know you then have you know, 5G coming out and all these things enabling IoT use cases. And it just means that you have all of this data that gives you a huge amount of richness and you can provide really granular and advanced control of these systems. That will be a big trend that, that I'd talk about. One, the power markets have shifted and have started to require batteries to manage, say, the duck curve that's emerged because there's been this big growth in solar or to charge up overnight because there's excess wind in Scotland and soak up negative pricing or resolve a, a congestion on your local feeder in your local neighborhood because lots of people have got EVs. All of those things together mean that it's a really interesting time to be in this business. But also, those are trends up until now. I think it's worth noting that going forward, you know, we see these trends continuing right. and we have to deploy like a huge amount of renewable generation over the next 15, 20 years. Right. That's going to lead to more variable pricing. It's going to lead to more negative pricing and need to more intermittency of the grid needing to be managed. Home electrification, which is fundamentally what we're concerned with, we're a home electrification company. You know, as you roll out EVs and heat pumps all across the grid, all of a sudden the local networks need to be really dynamically managed. Mm -hmm. And there are trends that support what our business is trying to do, both in the hardware side with the hardware that we're building with the Lunar system, but also with GridShare with this device agnostic DR management platform. You then have in a single home, there'll be lots of different types of devices. So you'll have a heat pump from this manufacturer, an EV charge from this manufacturer, and a battery from that manufacturer. And you know our platform connects to all of those disparate devices and says, how do we optimize at 
the sort of household level mm. so that each of those devices aren't competing for the solar on the roof or for the cheap energy overnight. Because if you don't sort of orchestrate it, then the customer could pay a lot of money for that instead of it being optimal. And then, of course, looking out towards the front of the grid or looking out onto the street, as it were, you know, how do we then connect all the homes in the neighborhood and push or pull power from those homes in a sort of aggregate way to help manage that local congestion that's emerged or to help manage that intermittency in the wholesale market because of lots of solar and wind. So <laughs> beautifully sophisticated confluence of trends and uh, challenges, if you will, that most folks don't spend a massive amount of time thinking about, which is always interesting to me. It's like electricity. I possibly spend too much time thinking about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. In your case, for sure. I can imagine that it might get a tiny bit much at times, but yeah, for most people, it's like they don't, they see the poles and wires perhaps, but they don't really see the electricity moving and they don't necessarily appreciate how little has changed in some ways over the past hundred years and how much needs to change in the next 20 years on the grid, which is pretty compelling stuff. And I'm glad that there's folks like you working on it. Before we get deeper on the software side, because I know that's where you're keenly focused in your day to day. And to me, that's one of the most exciting components of this conversation is the coordination of distributed energy resources. And as we started to talk about the data opportunity behind that, let's talk a little bit about the hardware stack, though, because that's obviously an important piece of what you all are bringing to market as well. What does the system look like? What are the options like there? What were some of the key considerations that went into how it was designed? All that good stuff. We're really excited about the Lunar system. If you want to see more, um, you can go to lunarenergy.com, have a play around. You can sort of design your system, see how much benefit it could bring you. Got lots of cool little videos of who's been working on it. Sort of makes it feel, brings it to real <laughs> life and you can see it like that. Nice. Fundamentally, we are building everything other than like the solar panels and the semiconductors, right? So we are starting from the bottom up, doing all the, you know, power conversion boards and everything. And we really wanted to design that integrated product so that customers get the product that they deserve and that can scale and that people want to buy so that we can, you know, have millions of batteries and homes across the USA and Japan and various other countries around the world. And not to have these sort of kit set things on their wall where there are different devices from different manufacturers that all have to be sort of cobbled together that take up more space on the wall that are harder to install. So that's what we're doing on the hardware side. So we've got an inverter that is 9.6 kilowatt power output, continuous and 15 kilowatt for five seconds really supports that off-grid um, scenario very well. You know, it can handle your AC unit running um, when the grid trips off. And when it does, it's a seamless transition, like no light fr flickering or anything like that. So that's the inverter. We then have essentially a five kilowatt hour modular battery blocks that are sort of mm. like, you know, Lego that you can stack. And those, you can sort of arrange the stack from sort of 10 to 30 kilowatt hour configurations. Yeah. And you can buy what you need. And then if, you know, you need to buy another five kilowatt hour Lego brick later on, you just pop that in and that, that's really easy. We then also have the Lunar Bridge, which is the sort of 200 amp circuit breaker panel that bridges your home to the grid mm. and sort of acts as your electrical panel. And so that enables your home to be islanded from the grid and form a microgrid when the grid goes down. Yeah. Um, we then have the Lunar Maximizer, which does what it says on the tin. It makes the most out of the solar panels that you've got on the roof. And so, yeah, that's the fundamentals of the hardware product. It's good in minus four degrees Fahrenheit to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, it's good and cold and hot. It can handle flooding up to three feet. So if you have water that's sitting around your house for a while, then that, that's fine. 
But one of the things that we've really been focusing on with the Lunar system has been installability. Yeah. We are focusing not just on the end customer, you know, sitting at the dinner table, checking their phone to see what's happening with their system, but also the army of installers that are out there and that army will need to grow over the next 15 to 20 years if we're to hit our climate goals. How do we make a product that they really want to install? Yeah. And so from the beginning, everything's been very design driven. How do you get this part of the system out of the box? Like what's the unboxing experience like? The fact that it's modular means that the heaviest component is 95 pounds mm. versus you know hundreds of pounds of a solid block that competitors <laughs> might have, which means that two people can very easily just lift up the block and put it on the wall. And actually on our website, we've got a video of a couple of Lunar employees doing that. We've built a little specific handle tool that you use to sort of you know clip in and then lift it up. So yeah, all of that as well, on top of that, the footprint of the system, it's 47% smaller than the main brands in the market. Mm. So in terms of wall space to energy ratio, we think it's a really compelling proposition. And the real world consequence of that is, you know, when somebody's thinking, oh, do I get a battery? And they're like, oh, but there's that thing in the garage. There's no space on the wall in the garage. <laughs> and, you know, outside I've got a, there's an AC unit out on the wall by the rosebush or whatever. They've got to find a slot to put this thing, right? And we're trying to make that as easy as possible and as flexible as possible so that more systems can be installed. And then when it actually comes to the installation itself, right? Like with the app that we've got, you know, we're aiming for like a 15-minute commissioning process. We're trying to mm-hmm. avoid the installer being sat in front of the, the device for a couple of hours waiting for the firmware to upgrade. Pain point, the pain points that installers feel, yeah. we know we've taken them on board and then we've, you know, actively tried to tick boxes across every single one of those pain points to say, how do we make this bit better? And you already started to speak to this with respect to kind of the space that the system takes up, but I was also curious to ask about potential other points of differentiation from what's on the what's on the market. It's not like there are countless battery systems deployed across the US. There are certainly some, which is exciting. But as far as what's already on the market, how else does the lunar energy system potentially outcompete those products? Aside from the installability, you know, we're also going to be coming to market with essentially a a system that will help to manage particular like high loads in the home. So if if we see that the consumption in the home is is sitting above that inverted threshold limit, then we can automatically and in priority order of what the customer wants, start to automatically shed those loads to keep the customer within that limit. So that's something that we're really excited about rolling out in due course as well. When we think about the customer experience, we are trying to make residential battery systems, consumer electronics. And we're trying to give people the digital experiences that they're used to in all other facets of their life, but that seem to be sorely missing when it comes to energy. And so what that means is that our customer app, for instance, is very focused on not just providing a bunch of power flow graphs to people and talking to them about kilowatts and kilowatt hours and all these sorts of things, Mm -hmm. but more about just talking to them on their terms and making, you know, we talked about that concept of the ebb and flow of the night and day. Right. This idea of being able to see how your home sort of ebbs and flows over time and understanding how today feels a little bit different than yesterday and being able to see mm. that, oh, the weather's a bit different or Timmy had a, a party or whatever and we used <laughs> way more power at three in the afternoon than we did because we had a party on, on Sunday afternoon, you know. Right. Seeing how your the world around you affects 
your energy consumption and or production is one way that we think is really important to make this feel like a human concept that people can engage in, that they can tell their friends about and that they want to buy. Yeah. I think people like that experience on apps too. Like if you, a different application is sort of more of the like wearable as it pertains to like data about your health, you know, people like to see, okay, I did these things differently on this day and that affected my sleep in, in XYZ capacity. So I think that's something that folks really enjoy tracking. And one other thing, you know, we've got this platform that we've been using in uh, Japan since 2019. We've got 36,000 uh, third-party batteries on our platform in Japan with our partner, Itochu. And for all of those homes, we're doing daily behind-the-meter optimization, right? They're all on time use tariffs. For all of those homes, we do predictions of what that particular home's solar is going to be, that particular home's consumption is going to be tomorrow. And then we make a decision every night. How much should we charge up the battery? Should we charge up 67%? And leave the rest to be filled from the sun tomorrow. Do we charge it up fully overnight? Do we not charge it overnight? Et cetera, et cetera. And that adds, essentially doubles the savings those customers get compared to the default modes of the battery. But the, when we were thinking, well, how can we make this app really, and this customer experience really unique? We thought, well, we've got these predictions. Let's give the customer a glimpse into the future. So in our app, they can scroll forward in time and they can see what's going to happen later today. They can see when the battery's going to fill up. They can see at what point in the day the VPP event that they're enrolled in, which Gritchia, our platform, will deliver, how the home starts to export at that time of day. So again, placing a home in context of the environment around it and letting people check their phone when they're having their morning coffee and just sort of scrolling forward to 4 p.m. and seeing what's going to happen and then right. going about their day. That's a really key thing that we're focusing on as well. Yeah, and the communication is also an important element because particularly in the US, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but sometimes I muse that when I start to think about like the VPP concept, it feels like Americans are uniquely a little bit resistant to having folks take control of their assets or kind of like operate them for them. And so, you know, that's probably not, it's certainly an overgeneralization and probably not true for a lot of my compatriots. But it is important that, you know, if you are going to manage something that is ostensibly someone else's energy resource for them, that that be clearly communicated and consistently communicated to them and that they have insight into why it's being managed a certain way. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised that point because it's a really core philosophy of ours is, you know, when we talk about VPPs, we're talking about like really customer-centric residential first VPPs. We're not talking about a big commercial platform that is controlling steel furnaces and all these sorts of, you know, 200 megawatt utility scale batteries, we are saying, mm. what does the customer's rate plan look like? How might we be using this battery to you know, shave their evening peak and save money on the bill at the end of the month? And what do those savings mm -hmm. look like? But then what do the revenue opportunities look like if they were selling into this other service? And compare those two things on a house-by-house -house basis and then say, well, if you want this customer to participate in this service, then this is how much you know it's worth to that customer. Because if you just connect a platform to thousands of devices and customers' homes and you turn them up and down in a way that A, you don't communicate, to your point, but B, might mean that at the end of the month, maybe the energy bill hasn't really improved that much. People are just going to opt out and people, you know, it's going to get a bad rap. People aren't going to sign up to these things. And right. so if we're really talking about a future energy system that's got millions of EVs and heat pumps and batteries in people's homes, all being sort of flexed up and down in this distributed web of energy, 
that's only right. going to happen if customers want to do it and it adds value for them. And so yeah. our platform, that's a real focus, is co-optimizing those two different things at once. And that's a good transition. I'm excited to talk more about the software and the platform that you all are building. I'm also realizing that some folks listening in might not be massively familiar with the virtual power plant concept, which is what we mean when we say VPP. Why don't we quickly break that down for folks? We've kind of already hinted at what it represents, and then we can start talking about the platform and the, all the software work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. No, I got a bit carried away there. That's good. <laughs> so a, a VPP is a collection of distributed energy assets that are controlled with software to deliver an aggregate result that benefits the grid or a grid actor in some way. Uh-huh. And if you think about it, like historically, halftime at the Super Bowl, there's a big demand spike, right? Everybody gets up and opens the fridge and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and historically, the way that we manage the power system is we look at what demand is doing and then we tweak supply to match it. So you, you know, right. tell the coal plant to you know put a bit more coal in the box and turn it up. And that's how you reach that balance. The idea with VPPs is that instead of making supply follow demand, you can tweak demand. And so instead of needing to go 20 megawatts of 20 megawatts more coal, you could do 20 megawatts of demand reduction, or you could do 10 megawatts of demand reduction and 10 megawatts of export. Like you can essentially use the other side of the equation to help bring the system into balance. And in some markets, that might just be zeroing the house and making that house not have any demand, or in other markets, like fully pushing out onto the grid. And those homes essentially becoming a distributed power station. And that distributed power station displaces the coal and the gas from the grid and essentially helps us to decarbonize the system and make it cheaper. And it becomes more and more important. As you alluded to, you know, 30 years ago, this wasn't as much of a consideration because most power generation happened in big power plants, kind of centralized power plants on the grid. And you didn't really necessarily have too many distributed energy resources in the form of a house with solar panels or a house with a battery or a house with an EV. 30 years ago, basically almost had none of that. But now we're getting this ballooning of millions of EVs are being sold in the US. That's one form of asset. Lots of homes have solar panels. That's another form of asset. Some homes are starting to add batteries. That's another asset. And you've got heat pumps, all kinds of different stuff. Like in the future, you can imagine that any home has a variety of different battery-esque systems that could be integrated into a virtual power plant. Like standalone battery is one form of it and EVs another. You could even imagine using kind of like air temperature or something like that in a demand response way. But suffice to say, like as the number of kind of points in all the different kind of distributed energy resources balloons, you need really good software to coordinate and harmonize all of that. So let's speak to the work that you're doing on that front, because I know that that's actually your more of your day-to-day charge that we're now getting into 27 minutes in the conversation. <laughs> what we've really done is we've tried to build a software platform that kind of embodies our vision of what future power markets will look like. And that's a market where, as you say, there are millions of high power assets in people's homes and prices in the market are dynamic. They flow through the system and this web sort of spots an issue at some corner and then the devices see a price signal and they react and they resolve it and they get a little bit of benefit and it brings benefit to the system. So fundamentally, you know, it's like a digital infrastructure layer for the future energy system. And, you know, going back a bit when Lunar Energy was founded in 2020, and then it acquired a company called Moixa, which is where I was previously, we're based out of London. And, you know, we have this grid share platform that is managing 
280 odd megawatts, 290 megawatts of power, 73,000, I think residential ESS are on the platform in different markets around the world. So this is something mm. that we're doing for real at scale in different markets, delivering different use cases. And the platform has been built to be able to turn up in Hawaii or Portugal or Belgium or Arizona and say, right, what are the market settings here? Right. Where are the pockets of value? Push a few buttons here, push a few buttons there. And then it all just automatically starts to optimize for the devices in those homes. So yeah, that's what the platform does. And you hit it, or you introduced this earlier when you were talking about Japan, where you're already using the platform to help manage, I think you said something like 36,000 assets. And that's a good reminder that this isn't something that's only going to work with Lunar Energy's hardware system. It's designed to be able to ingest data from a bunch of different types of systems and harmonize all of them. And so as much as you would obviously like as many folks as possible to install and deploy the lunar energy system being system agnostic on the software side feels like an important component of the business model to build the strongest possible and most robust possible vpp networks in the future you know we're fundamentally concerned with reshaping the way that the energy system works so that we can hit our climate targets right and what that means is what is it 75 million homes in the us 250,000 have a battery like the pie needs to grow massively from now it needs to grow really really quickly right and the lunar system will be, you know, hopefully a decent chunk of that growth. But we also believe that this is an ecosystem that needs to emerge. And that if all of these devices are walled gardens, then, and frankly, this isn't just an opinion, like we know this from our conversations with utilities across Europe and North America, mm. is that those utilities want to deliver a service where lots of different devices can come to them and be controlled for a given you know, use case. I want pink boxes, green boxes, and blue boxes. And then at the same time, the end customer, you know, they've spent money on this pink box and they want to sign up for a VPP service, but it says, no, sorry, it's blue boxes only. That's the stuff that we're trying to avoid. And that's where, right. that's what the grid share platform is really seeking to achieve. And for instance, you know, we're delivering all of Sunrun's VPP services in the mm. USA right now and have been for over a year and a half. And, you know, none of that is with Lunar ESS. So yeah. we are, you know, really on the collaborative side of things. And, and we're just trying to get these VPPs and sort of distributed assets growing as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's cool that you're already getting a lot of reps in and collecting a lot of data and getting practice using the platform even before your own hardware system rolls out. I'm curious also in the day-to-day, -day, sitting here kind of already in the second half of 2023, and the year's flown by, but what's front of mind for you right now as you continue to head up software and platform development? like? what's happening next week that you're preparing for <laughs> i'm on the product side and that means you know there's no engagement with engineering or with design or with marketing or the business side there's lots of sort of bd conversations that need to happen but you know the big things we're having conversations with various utilities in europe about rolling mm. out optimization services with third-party devices for them you know mm. we are continuing to deliver and scale up our vpp services with sunrun we are delivering flexibility to some of the biggest power companies in, in Japan. And, you know, we've been doing some work with TEPCO, which I think is the second biggest power company in the world. It's like 60 gigawatts mm. peak demand, like huge amount of power. So we're working with lots of stuff in Japan. And then, you know, obviously we're really focused on getting everything ready for, for the launch of the Lunar system. So right. as well as talking about integrations or particular market settings in different markets around the world, it's also, I was having a conversation today about the copy that we have for a particular corner of the customer app and how we make that really engaging. 
the helicopter goes up and down quite a few times in any given day. Yeah. But that's what's <laughs> fun about it. Well, I'm not sure I can help you massively on the like conversations with utilities, but if you want to tap me in on some in-app copy, I'm happy to <laughs> to lend the writing skills on that front. We can get you in to do some user testing for us. Yeah, by all means. I, I'd love that. But actually, that's not a joke. Yeah. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll send you the app. You should do some user testing. Sounds great. And then I'll use that as a way to like kind of pre-sell my parents on the fact that they need to get the system for their house out in California. We need all the ambassadors we can to tackle climate change. Something you mentioned kind of raised the power markets question for me again, which I know you and I have discussed a little bit, but as far as like some of the things that I imagine being most challenging, and I don't want to put the car before the horse too much, but I'm curious about the differences across markets. I mean, electricity itself can seem like such a commodity, but the way it's regulated and managed and delivered across different markets, even within the same country, can be pretty significantly different. So I guess the short version of the question is, how much have you learned about that in the past two years? And is it enough for its own like two-hour podcast in and of itself, probably? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably enough for a degree, like a PhD. I fell into energy product kind of from the policy and rate side, like that question of like mm. how are markets designed? You know, are they vertically integrated? How are monopolies regulated? What incentives are they given? And yeah, I mean, to the quick summary of that, it's really quite different in lots of different places in terms of how the markets are designed. But a lot of the time, the actual like physical problem is revealing itself in very similar ways. So you see this growth of solar onto the grid. You see intermittency in the wholesale market, maybe. You see congestion on the local network. And then there's a question about, well, is that resolved by prices that are dynamic and can flow down to customers? So, you know, energy gets expensive for a given half hour. Mm. How is the network monopoly, the distribution network operator, how are they incentivized to, you know, address those congestion problems? Are they, is it in their interest to just chuck in three new transformers? Or if they procure flexibility services or non-wire alternatives, as they're called in the States, do they get to hold on to a bit of that, those savings? And does that start to promote flexibility, which is what we've seen in the UK with the Rio and Rio 2 pricing. And there's lots of distribution flexibility going on in the UK. And in the US, that problem of evening, like duck curve and all that kind of stuff in California, for instance, historically was dealt with through having TOU and, and NEM rates and stuff. But now with NEM3, we're seeing that the value to the system of a customer taking a particular action is being more directly passed through which we think is, you know, the right direction of travel for making these systems work in, a, in an automated way. I think summarizing power markets <laughs> in two minutes is tricky, but <laughs> it's something that we are really, really just interested in. You know, we've got a whole team that, that looks at this stuff and works out what the value is in Flanders versus Wallonia and Belgium and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because at the end of the day, particularly, yeah, well, I mean, for hardware and software, the business case is directly related to what is the market design? Yeah. Can residential assets play in these markets? How are those services procured? Are they long-term bilateral contracts or are they like auctions that are transparent? Like all these sorts of things have a massive bearing on what you try to do as a business. And actually, you know, it's intellectually sort of gratifying, but it actually is a really, really good way for us to build functionality that is robust and generalizable. Like mm. we come across a use case in one market and we build a little bit into the platform that helps to handle that. And then as we keep moving forward, we come across similar things again. Mm -hmm. And we've seen how it's done in different places. And 
it gets to a point where you can just turn up and you can say, oh, it's that like we did in that other place. And the platform is just ready to go, which we think is a really unique part of what we're trying to do. Well, when we chat again a year or two from now and I check in, I'll be interested to pick your brain a little bit more deeply on what you think the most effective or successful markets are in terms of how they're regulated and managed and stuff like that. Because that's something interesting that I'm sure you'll build some perspective on over time. I can give you a very quick answer right now from a principle basis from what we've seen, which is that, you know, we think that dynamic pricing that reflects the cost of the system at a given place or point in time is really, really important to make the system kind of self-heal. And you need to have, you know, pretty granular settlement of prices. So exposing prices to customers on a sort of half hourly basis. Mm. We think that having sort of transparent and frequent, ideally auction-based services, markets for grid services is really important. So you start to reveal the value of those services to the grid at different points in time. And then obviously access for residential devices into wholesale markets. But the one point that I also want to add on to that is that it's about building a system that has that capability, but that isn't necessarily forced on everyone in the system. So you can have dynamic pricing and you can have like granular settlement of those costs to customers. Doesn't mean that every single customer has to be on that tariff and has to be in that kind of paradigm. You can still have retailers or utilities provide fixed rates for a few years. And if people don't have high power devices in their homes where they can shift their load, then you can end up in a situation where people just cooking dinner gets twice as expensive, which has a whole bunch of XP concerns <laughs> around it. Right. But it's more about making sure that the system has that plumbing or like the maybe plumbing's it's the wrong construction analogy. It needs to have the right <laughs> scaffolding. And then you can put the right facade on it that you need to for that use case. But the, the scaffolding has to be there. Something you mentioned earlier was, you know, you're having a decent amount of conversations with utilities. That, for me, also prompted the question, utilities get a bad rap sometimes because they can be seen as kind of stodgy and slow in terms of how they innovate, for lack of a more eloquent way of saying it in the moment. But they are managing one of the most important technologies to humanity. And so there's a lot of reliability and safety concerns that they obviously have to navigate in that. What types of questions are they most keenly asking you and when you go and have conversations about how to integrate these systems or deploy them at scale in their markets? Like, what are they most curious and concerned or excited about? Probably boils down to one word, and that's trust. Can they trust these assets to turn up Mm. when they need them? And that's something that as we do it more and more and as other actors in the space do it more and more, hopefully that trust question starts to fade away and it starts to become a more delivery and operational and commercial question. One thing that I was thinking about the other day, you know, we're making all these, you know, having these conversations with various parties. And, but when you zoom out, this question of like trying to sell the service to a given utility and they're maybe being a bit unsure of like, well, is this going to connect into our systems? We've got all these security requirements, et cetera, et cetera. And we've done all the security certifications that we can. And we're yeah. very, very focused on that. But this is climate change and microcosm. Like mm. we've got to change the fundamentals of how our economy works, not just in energy and transport and agriculture and all these different places. And in every single one of those sectors, you know, these conversations are happening in rooms or on Zoom calls where people are saying, but is that really the right way? Or or I'm not sure about the pricing or like, is that, is the customer going to understand it? And this is really, we're at the, I mean, coalface is almost exactly the wrong word for what we're doing, right? But it's like really at the, at the coalface of trying to shift these industries. And, <laughs> you know, what, what are the things that we focus on? Well, we show them our track record, right? We show them the power of the platform. We show them how flexible it is to all these different future use cases. 
we've got a really advanced data platform that can do really detailed simulations, like say over a year based on historic meter data. Right. And we will say, well, this is how the control would happen in five minutely buckets over an entire year with these three different like hardware sizes or like rate plans or whatever. And so when we do that and we essentially show them, this is how the system would work. And we've ran the system like for real against this data. They find that really, really useful, but it's about trust. And it's really about systems. It's about what systems do they already have in place? What are the platforms they're using to manage their network? What are the billing platforms that they have? Yeah. If you do all this cool control, does that value, can that value actually flow down into a customer bill at the end of the month? Or do they not have a billing platform that's that granular? That's the sort of on the ground reality of this stuff. And actually the other big thing is customer engagement and customer experience. These are not historically companies who have focused on customer experience mm. and customer communication. And all of a sudden they are needing to maybe put out an app that right. tells the customer about this really complicated stuff that's happening in their home. And the customer right. has historically been somebody they send a letter to once a month. Right. Their one touch point was the bill. And now it's like, give them a experience like they're on Airbnb. Like that's a jump. <laughs> and so that's really where we are trying to help them out is to bring them along that journey. Building trust with utilities sounds like one of really important metric goal over the next year, three years, five years. How else do you like to measure success and what do you think ahead to 2030? It's like, what are some of the metrics where you're like, this is what I'd like to see us accomplish? I really want us to get to a place where there's a very high level idea that, you know, we want people to be talking about energy in the same way they talk about sport or politics or food, right? Like this is a really massive part of our yearly spend and it's a critical part of our life. And we like, we just don't know anything about it. And we want to give people experiences that engage them and make them want to know more and understand how they're making a difference. The other thing I think, frankly, is, you know, in five years, I'd like Lunar Energy to be a household name to millions of people around the world. Because what that means is that they are seeing ads for a lunar system on Instagram or on the tube in London or whatever it might be, because these products have become so normal and they have been scaled up to that level. One really useful metric for me would be being able to talk about what I do at like a dinner <laughs> party and that taking less than 10 seconds rather than needing to do like a little sort of summary of power systems and then people sort of nodding and trying to change the conversation. The explanation of virtual power plants we gave earlier, maybe five years from now, that'll be a reasonably common concept. Just say VPP and people are like, oh yeah, that's a really good metric if people know what a VPP is. Yeah, that is a good goal. I have to imagine that if I asked one of my friends right now, one of them might have some understanding of a VPP. And it's not because I haven't tried to write about it in my newsletter and they're all subscribed. It's because like, even still, it's difficult. It's not like this is the first time that fundamental technologies have changed. When electricity first started, people were worried about vapors and things in their home and, you know, worried about where this light was coming from and could you trust it? And, you know, that ship has sailed. And mm -hmm. now we've got to move on to the next task of understanding and conveying how great this sort of new system can be. Great note to close on. That's a good grounding mission for us. Something to think about every day and every week. Sam, thanks so much for being here. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and as always, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. That was a really great chat. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.